0: Part of our job is to make sure that people know that this is working, right? They need to see the jobs, they need to see the investment, they need to see the deployment. And so we call it winning the win, right? We got to win the win. We got to like, we had this huge transformational piece of legislation, but if that's the only conversation we're having, we've lost. This is the Solar Disruption Theory.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Solar Disruption Theory podcast. My name is Chad Towner. With us, we've got the CEO of Freedom Forever, Brett Bushy. And so far this season, we've brought in different thought leaders and leaders in the solar industry, and today is no exception. We've got the CEO of the Solar Energy Industry Association, SIA. The CEO and President, Abby Hopper, as well as the SVP of Supply Chain and Sustainability, John Smirnow. Thank you guys for coming, how you doing?
0: We're great. Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
1: You guys have actually been working on the Inflation Reduction Act, right? You guys have been working on that for several years. Right. And I want to get into all of how how that happened. It's such a huge piece of news and development for the solar industry in general. You know, so we on our side are just couldn't be more excited about it. And first and foremost, we wanted to thank you guys for all of the work that you guys do typically our audience isn't privy to a lot of the conversations that you guys are involved in. You know, I, I bet the majority of our audience has not set foot in the White House, for example. <laughs> and and you guys, you know, that's a regular occurrence for you. So I can't wait to dig in and figure out how this whole thing came to be. The Inflation Reduction Act really is a monumental uh, improvement and it's just one of the most exciting things that's happened in my 10 years of being in the solar industry. Mm-hmm. So we thought that to start off this episode, it would be appropriate to celebrate the fact that you guys got that done and to thank you. And so what we've done is we brought here a uh, a bottle of champagne. Oh
0: my goodness. Figured we might
1: want to celebrate on air. Woo-hoo! Um, and if you're not drinkers, I also have a non-alcoholic version and uh, we figured we might Want to have a toast? Let's what do you toast. think about that?
0: Let's do, Let's do it. it. I love it. There's a lot to celebrate.
1: I agree. Thanks so much. This was <laughs> this was Brett's idea by the way.
0: Congratulations. Oh, I thank you. Thank you, thank you. Oh my goodness.
3: And I'm only doing this because I'm excited that this has got to be the first time that Chad has opened up a bottle of champagne. His entire life, he doesn't drink, <laughs> right? And I just wanted to see him do it. Like, can he do it? Can he do, can it? He I, do I, it? I'm not sure if he can. And if he does do it, is he going to take any? You
1: know, yeah. Take can someone's we just like
0: is there eye wear here? I,
3: I, I <laughs> I've got glasses.
1: All right, I'm good. I asked oh, him. Lord. I'm like, hey, are you going to open this? And he's like, no, you're nope, doing it. You're, you're the host. Definitely doing and it. And I see. I knew exactly what he was. Uh, Okay. I'm Do you like know nervous. where to point it? I, n- definitely okay, not. If you're listening <laughs> so I'll to point this it away from on <laughs>
0: Spotify, get on YouTube and watch this situation.
1: I will point this away from. I don't. Are you, you going to? Am point I it at, at Brett? risk right now? Y- I'm yeah. pointing it into the back. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, guys. I will watch me open this bottle of Martinelli's. I will crack that open in I no time. I Wait. All right. Okay. This has not been shaken, has it? You guys shook this, didn't you? Oh. All right. Now what do I do? Just pull it off? I, I don't know. We're
3: gonna see. This is
0: like this is, <laughs> this is
3: riveting. Danny, Danny, Danny would. Do <laughs> I'm gonna try twisting. That we're, we're drinking. Uh, okay, uh, it's uh, coming uh, up. Ooh. <laughs> what do I
1: do?
0: Yeah, keep doing it. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, that I'll was pour awesome. One for Johnny, and I'll okay. you, I'll share what you're having. Do I just pour. Yeah, more. Yeah, a little, little. A little more, slowly, a little slower, a little slower. Oh, oh slower. goodness. Slower. slower, yeah.
3: Uh, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Hold on. Let's see how it goes.
0: Okay. Pour one for Brett. Oh, goodness gracious. This is what
3: you
1: guys get. You, you, you get the amateur in here, and this is... Uh,
3: Just don't get it on my shoes. I don't know what is more dangerous, swimming with orcas or having you open a bottle of Dom. <laughs> is that enough? <laughs> that's enough. Let's
1: start
0: it this. I oh, love oh. it. No, I'll have the other for you, oh, with you. Okay. I'll share that.
1: Let's... Uh, my hands are all wet. We,
0: we, have, a, we have a Dom tradition of celebrating we do yes we, we do. do we have celebrated when we had the two-year extension
2: yeah
0: wasn't when, what was that the end of 20
3: 20 yeah i oh, you have to have some my whole scheme oh my was gosh. to get you to loosen up right? and you really get the inside scoop yeah and we you can't you do that champagne
0: s- to loo- loosen up? <laughs> s- sparkling
3: apple cider is not going to do it watch all it. Right? just
0: you watch i will deliver yeah, I promise.
2: Our, our head Wait. of comms would be like you're don't drink and do the interviews we the sugar hits that. just that's as hard yeah. i can promise you that is that why you got the
0: crumble cookies <laughs> that's, that's why you got the crumble uh, cookies. there
3: there there is a method to everything that we do here I love at freedom it. like it really truly is but
0: <laughs> i love it
3: i, I, I first of Thank all you. like just i i would love to start by just asking the question is that and we <sighs> use a term that i hate in this industry called the solar coaster but it truly was like it was so up and down it looked like it was going to happen. Then it wasn't gonna happen. Then it was pretty much dead. And then all of a sudden, we wake up, all right? And I'm—I I get the notices from you guys, ever like that—that Mansion agreed to a deal. What yeah. happened?
0: What happened? I will happily tell you. Shall we toast? Let's toast. toast. Let's toast. So the
1: Inflation Reduction Act, and Abby and John at SIA.
0: Ah. You And to all of your listeners, you know, they may have never been in the White House, but I've never been in someone's kitchen trying to sell solar. So we have a lot to learn from each other. I love that. Yes. Oh wait, I forgot to drink. Hold on. Yes.
1: See, this sugar's already it's already doing its thing, just so you know.
0: (laughs) The crumble cookie really got me. Very tasty. (laughs) Very tasty. So (laughs) everything you said is accurate. It was um, it was a ride of a lifetime when the house had passed the build back better bill everything we wanted everything we asked for was in it there was a 10-year extension of the investment tax credit which literally came because my vice president of congressional affairs and i aaron duncan and i i was supposed to testify before uh the house ways and means committee and we they wanted to know what we wanted it was before any legislation had been written summer of 2021 right after biden was inaugurated and uh Erin and I were chatting on the phone, right? Because it was still very COVID so we weren't in the same place. And she said, Well, why don't we just ask to fill the budget window? Like, let's just ask for a 10 year extension. I mean, the worst they could do is say no. I was like, Yeah, that's a good idea. So that was it. That was, I've now told you the genesis of the 10 year ITC extension is that Erin and I were trying to figure out what I would say in front of the uh, House Ways and Means Committee. That was summer of 2021. It got in the bill, it passed out of the House. And you, I mean, you, I remember where I was. You probably remember where you were. You're like, oh my gosh, this is happening. By the end of 2021, we are going to be like, woo. And then December 21, and Manchin said, I'm not doing it. And what had been sort of this Christmas high, right, like we're going into the holidays, the new year, this is incredible, came crashing to the ground. And um, that was a low point. That was the first of many low points, but that was certainly a low point. And then Things were quiet in Washington, January and February of 2022. Um, it felt like there was no hope, right? And there was a lot of other stuff was happening. Some trade issues started happening and we thought, I'm sorry, we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. And we can't get anything done. And we're getting mm-hmm. slammed on trade. What, what weird universe are we living in? Yeah. And we kept looking at each other like, I thought it was supposed to be better. I thought this was supposed to be better. And then things started moving and maybe there was some momentum and we went to events with Senator Manchin and we went to events with Senator Schumer. Like we you know, we did all the things that we do in Washington. And uh and it felt like we were some momentum and we felt like things were getting better and we had people coming in and all kinds of lobbying. And then it died again. And I I remember where I was. at that so there was a couple iterations, but it, it was in July um July of 2022. When senator manchin again said i think he said it on fox news i like one of the sunday morning shows i'm not voting for this i do i remember exactly where i was i remember what i was wearing i remember where i was standing because i thought how is this happening how is this one human standing in the way of incredible progress and transformation of our economy and you know we had all spent tons of time in west virginia we'd all spent tons of time thinking about what he wanted, what was important to him, how we could be helpful to his state. And then um, I had a talk with my board chair. I was going to go be um, a barista. He was going to go be a bartender. We are going to forget solar, forget it, it's all over, like I'm out of here. Uh, and then we got it together. And what was different about that moment in time was that my team decided we're not giving up. I live inside the Beltway. I am a Beltway insider. I've lived there my whole life. I love politics. I love all of that stuff. Um, but most people inside the Beltway said, it's over. Like, let's just call it. Let's, let's focus on a two-year extension, end-of-year tax extenders. We're not going to fight anymore. It's clear that this thing has died. And my team and I said, uh-uh, this is way too big. We're not ready yet. And so I spent that weekend on the phone calling senators, not the senators whose names were in the newspapers, right? Like, I did not call Senator Manchin. I did not call Senator Schumer. I called senators like Senator Heinrich. Um, Senator Cortez Masto and others and said basically hey we need an adult in the room like we need someone who has not backed himself into a corner we need someone who is a bit more um, less emotionally invested in this process and perhaps has a clear head Um, and so uh, we did that and we said we need you to fight like this, this can't be over there's way too much on the line and then we did something else which you may think is a little odd, um, sort of given your business model, but it was highly effective. And that is, for the first time ever, SIA and the IBW wrote a letter together and said to Senator Manchin, you need to pass the, it was still called the Build Back Better bill, right? This is too impactful. There are too many jobs, too much capital deployment, too many opportunities to be left standing on the sidelines. Lonnie Stevenson, who was the head, the president of of the national IBW, called Senator Manchin. We did tons of outreach and it was all quiet. And then again, I remember exactly where it was when the first words hit that a deal had been cut. Um, It was, as we know, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, not the Build Back Better Act. We call it whatever we want, Um, but it had almost everything we wanted. And it was um, it was an incredible moment I was on vacation with my family like we my entire family takes a very we've been doing it since I was born like all my cousins all my aunts and uncles it was my grandparents but obviously they've all passed away now all my children and all their cousins so there's like 40 plus of us so we're all on vacation together and this thing dropped and I had to like I was like kids you know mommy's on vacation but I gotta work and they were like ah mommy you always work but I think they get it now, like why this This one was particularly noteworthy. I can talk a lot more, but you should talk a little bit about the manufacturing piece because yeah. that had its own kind of ebb and flow, which I think is really impactful. Or it, we could wait. And, and, then, and I do
3: want to talk about that. But yeah. I mean, was there any like signs beforehand? Because I watched the same thing with Manchin and I'm like, I believed him. Like, I, yeah, like when you look at his history, he d- when he says something, it's definitive and he doesn't really change like most politicians do. So I kind of was thinking it was dead, Right, but was there any like inkling that you knew 24 hours that it was going on? Because it seems like there was like three people, no one really knows that I've talked to really how it happened. When you read the document, it's obvious that there's been some cut and pasting on documents. It's like put together haphazardly, which means it probably did happen in the middle of the night. No offense to the Hmm. document. And um, it's just—it's stunning how it happened. Not that it did happen. That is the way. Has, has anyone given you any insight? You know, where they had a bar
0: at eleven o'clock
3: at night, and <laughs> you know, like what
0: what happened? I have not heard that. That is a very well kept secret in Washington. Um, there are a very few number of people that know. Um, there were some inklings that things were happening, right? Like. Things around direct pay where we were having very, very detailed conversation around direct pay and what that might look like. Same on the domestic content, like what percentages might work. So it was much, 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 much more detailed than simply 10 year yes, 10 year no. Right. It was like, let's talk about the actual words on the piece of paper. But those final comings together. Great, great secret.
3: All right. So I want to hear about the manufacturing. I am fascinated by it. We have outlined a business strategy that I never dreamed we would be doing because of the Inflation Reduction Act. But one question I want to ask you is about is how did it get so heavily weighted from a positive standpoint for PPAs versus individuals? Like we talk about all the stackable credits that you can have, but why did they end up going to corporations or PPAs versus individuals?
0: Yeah, no, it's a really good question. It's something that Sia fought. We fought hard and long and very passionately for individual consumers. And the um, the things that are in there were almost not in there. Like by the skin of their teeth, they got, they got in there. So the 10-year extension for 25D is in there. Um, and I will tell you from... I was going to say from my perspective, it's based on conversations with legislators and staff and IRS staff. It's like not just something Abby thought up in her bedroom, but based on those conversations, there is a pretty um, institutional distrust of consumers, um, that there's a lot of concern about fraud and abuse, that there's a worry that individual consumers will take advantage of d- direct pay, for example, that that, that did not even though we made the arguments very strongly that it was actually an, a tool to bring a more equitable outcome to, to solar residential, solar deployment, that there's a lot of concern about how we would track that and make sure that individuals were not taking advantage of the system, that there is historically, kind of in the DNA of the of the IRS, there's a much more of a comfort level with corporations, right? And that the two tax provisions, as you know, 48 and 25, which are, you know, the commercial and the residential. They have different histories in the tax code. And so even though you and I, well, I don't know what you think. I sort of see them as, you know, ones for business, ones for individuals. Those that live in the tax world don't see them as sort of as like brother and sister. They see them as like distant cousins. And so there's sort of not a sense that they should be treated similarly. Those are the kind of conversations we were having with IRS staff, with committee staff, with legislators, which was, we're really not comfortable with giving individuals. There was a lot of conversation around, well, can we means test it, right? Can we make sure that 25D, perhaps direct pay, is only available to people below a certain income level, below a certain um, credit score, in particular areas of the country, and they just decided right that that just wasn't workable that that was not something there was political appetite for um so that that's what i know
3: and and what's great about it is that i don't think they intended but there is and for the listeners that you know don't truly grasp what these stackable um, credits are is that A customer actually, an individual can benefit through the form of a PPA. The PPA Mm -hmm. is the owner of the system, so those corporations are benefiting uh, from that. Mm -hmm. And those corporations that sell PPAs like Sunrun and Sunova, they're going to pass a lot of that or most of that down to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So there is some benefits to the individual consumers. That's the first thing we need to educate um, the public about, that they yep. can take advantage of these stackable credits, but only through a PBA. Right. So, and I'd love to just kind of break down, you know, and this might be a question for you, John, like what are those stackable credits? Could you break down each one of them, and explain them to our listeners?
2: Yeah. So um, the the one that I focus on day to day is the domestic content piece. So that's 10% on top of the existing 30% credit. So 10% of what? Yeah, of the total cost of the system. So if the sy-
3: system costs was
2: yeah, of the, the $45,
3: cost was $45,000 for the system cost, what would the credit be?
2: Yeah, it would be the it would be 10, 10% of $4,500, mm-hmm. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, in some instances, that is a refundable credit. So for nonprofits, they would be able to get a direct refund from that. Uh, others are going to have to, you know, through their annual annual filing. Uh, there are also lower income uh, communities that Abby can can speak to that are on top of that. You want
0: to yeah, that. so there's a couple of other, um, it's funny, usually it's 45,000. Everything in my math is like, okay, so it costs $100. And then yeah. <laughs> 10% of that is $10. Um, so that, the, as John said, there's a 10% domestic content adder. There's also a 10% adder for what it's called energy communities. And so th- let me just like take a little side like a little side tangent. So we I mean most people probably know or if they if they don't know they think about it. The United States government has historically used the tax code to incent behavior that it that it wants to see. So if you think about home ownership, right? Probably most people who are listening to this podcast either own a home their parents owned a home, they might hope to own a home at some point. And one of the benefits of owning a home is that your mortgage payment, and you know, there are parts of it that are deductible on your tax. So that's a way that the government incents home ownership. Yeah, This is one of the first times in which the tax code has been used to incent behavior in the clean energy industry, right? So the adders really incent particular kinds of behavior. So they're incenting domestic manufacturing through that 10% adder. They're incenting developing projects in what are called energy communities. So those are communities, they're defined a couple of different ways. Um, some of them are areas in which there's a coal plant. Some One criteria has to do with the unemployment rates in that community. So if the unemployment rates are high, one has to do with sort of the, the tax revenue and whether a fair amount of the tax revenue comes from fossil fuel generation. So they're clearly trying to address this notion that clean energy is leaving sort of traditional fossil fuel communities behind. And in order to address that, they're incented to build or you know create uh, solar projects in areas that are traditionally fueled by fossil fuel or where the communities are fueled by the fossil industry. There's also um, a a low income, as John said, adder that um, there's a cap on it. So this is the only one of them that has a a cap, but it is for um, other kinds of communities that are historically lower income. Um, All of these are, you know, we can talk about sort of the the uh, unknowns that still exist. In all of this, but those are some of the adders, and it's an interesting way. I mean, you can clearly see the policy objectives of Congress, right? Domestic manufacturing, like fossil communities and low-income communities, and it's it's pretty interesting way to go about it. And we can talk about the base credit on the resi- on the commercial side as well.
3: And what is the what is the cap on low income?
0: So it's one point eight gigawatts a year um which i don't know how do you translate that for listeners
3: i i think we <laughs> I, I think most people that are low income that will fall into that category will be able to get it yeah. in 2023
0: yeah i think most well they will be able to get it assuming that the the rules come out in a way that we would like them to right
3: yes and is that 10% also
0: that there there's 10% and 20% and there's sort of there's there's we're still waiting for clarification on on which adder applies The 10% or the 20%. We're also waiting for clarification on what um, sort of if it's residential or community or both. We're waiting for clarity on whether there's going to be a specific delineation, you know, like of that 1.8 gigawatt, for example, 50% is for community solar, 50% is for residential solar. We're waiting for clarification on whether It's a first come, first serve, right? If you're in line the first day, then you get it. And if you don't develop a project until October, you might be out of luck. It could instead be, you know, a quarter of it's released on first quarter, a quarter, second quarter. You know, there's a lot of different ways that will, you know, obviously Freedom Forever is a particularly well positioned company, right? You have sort of the financial wherewithal and the business sophistication to figure those rules out and move quickly perhaps a small sole proprietor may not have as much sophistication and may not be able to navigate some of those. And so it's an interesting um, conversation. We're we are, th- These are the reasons we go into the White House, right? To have these conversations with, with the White House, with Treasury, with DOE, to say, hey, let's think about what, what are we trying to actually accomplish? And let's make sure the rules that you set out accomplish those goals.
3: Yeah. And I, I just want to keep I want to finish this kind of point yeah. just to make sure that listeners truly understand the magnitude of this. Cause yeah. I, I call them stackable credits. Right. All right. So I want to make sure that we just do a little math here. Math. I, lo- I, I love to do, I love to do math. All right. Me too. We got a 30% tax credits. Ooh. All right. <laughs> then we got uh, 10% for energy communities on top of that. Right. Yeah.
0: Yours are side by side. They're on, they should be on top on top. Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. We go there. Right, I'm going to run out of hands cause there's a lot more coming.
3: <laughs> all right. And then we also have a low income uh-huh. on top of that. What is the maximum that you can get up to when you add the domestic content and some of the other stuff?
0: So, again, we need clarity from the federal government to ensure that this number is correct. But our, our basic reading is it could be up to 70 percent. So that means, on my math, at $100, if your project, if your installation costs $100, $70, $70 of that can be uh a a credit against your taxable income.
3: Yeah, and to put it in a terms for our listeners, a $40,000 project, <laughs> $28,000, there is a credit going to either Sunrun or Sonova, or whoever is doing your PPA. Right. All right, now
2: that doesn't mean you'll get all that benefit to the customer, but you will get a vast majority of it. Yeah, you're going to get a you're going to get a big chunk of that. The one the 1.8 gigawatts, that's a few billion in government expenditures that's going to drive several billion dollars in private sector investments just for that alone. You know, if you think of the 30% tax credit, you know, many tens of billions of dollars of uh, private sector investments that's going to drive.
3: And and that doesn't the 70% doesn't include the tax credit for um, phase solar edge on top of that doesn't talk we're not even talking about the manufacturing part yeah, yet. Yeah, that's, right. that's in that's addition so to that, yeah.
0: or whatever the state incentives might be. It, yeah.
3: yeah, so I want to just make sure that everybody understands what a tremendous opportunity this is in residential yeah. solar, but the individual is going to get a huge benefit through the PPAs. We're also going to see a significant swing from purchase to PPAs. Mm. And the other thing is based on energy communities and the math I've done, it literally, I believe almost all of West Virginia is gonna be deemed an energy community. That is going to all of a sudden go from a difficult state to make solar work, it's gonna open up the entire state. Yeah. So because of this, we are gonna be opening up probably three or four branches that we wouldn't have done without it. Right. And uh, it just, it's an amazing accomplishment. And I get so excited about it, but I'm even, I'm just excited about the manufacturing side of it. So I'd love to hear, John, you're the expert. It's part of your title. And uh, so I'd love to hear all the details around manufacturing. But Before we do that, you
0: have to invite us to all of those uh, office openings because part of our job is to make sure that people, people, and my, you know, my people are people who who got elected to represent us in Washington know that this is working, right? They need to see the jobs, they need to see the investment, they need to see the deployment. And so um, we call it winning the win, right? We gotta win the win. We gotta like we, we had this huge transformational piece of legislation, but if that's the only conversation we're having, we've lost, right? So we've got to win the win and help let us help you amplify all that good news.
3: Yeah, and and we will definitely do it. And all we'll right, talk Johnny. a little bit about, about our manufacturing yeah, plan so after it, we hear it, the great it, news it, from John.
2: So, you know, as we discussed over lunch, I mean, manufacturing is in my blood. I grew up in a small tool and dye shop north of Detroit and, uh, you know, really believe that manufacturing is, uh, can be an anchor of a community. Huge, huge supporter of that. Um, this is my second time at CEA. I was at CEO from 2010 to 2015. Came back in, in uh, 2018. In um, the first time, I was really excited about going into the solar industry, working for the Trade Association and advocating for manufacturing. One of the first uh, board meetings I went to, the board decided, ah, we already have pretty sufficient investments around the world manufacturing. Maybe that's not a top policy priority. Uh, disappointed me, but solar, huge opportunity. I was excited about that. Came back in 2018 in my new role. Sat down with Abby, and um, she was like, you know, what do you think about manufacturing? Doing more as we look to, uh, you know, a Republican administration, a Democratic administration. It seems like both of those administrations are really going to want to see more manufacturing. Again, you know, the solar industry, prior to that, it was free trade mindset. We just, it's all about deployment. We don't really, we're not focused on where the inputs come from. Some people would even say, you know, if other countries want to subsidize this, we should build warehouses and load it up with all this, you know, subsidized solar panels. But we saw the trend that, uh, and the need to really start building long-term for solar to succeed, to survive in the U.S., and being such a critical part of our economy, we really needed to have manufacturing here. Created the division, we developed a white paper. We started thinking about what would it take to really make uh, a U.S. homegrown manufacturing base because huge gaps in the solar supply chain right now. And we looked to state economic development. Traditionally, state economic development is the driver of manufacturing around the country. The federal government really t- ha- traditionally hasn't played a role. But as we look at where other countries succeed, where even US companies are building, solar companies are building factories overseas, it's twofold investments. It's investments at the state, provincial level, and the federal government level. So our analogy was as how the US states compete against one another for manufacturing investments. To build manufacturing here, to pull foreign direct investment here, we needed both the federal and state working together, investing in manufacturing. And so we started um, through our manufacturing division, through our board, through our federal policy committee, identifying, working with companies who are either manufacturers or would be interested in manufacturing, what type of policies, what type of federal investments would incent you to build factories in the US. Came up with a list of three or four things. We um, It was we were one of the first industries to say, to be comfortable saying we need an industrial policy. Now that's you know, nobody's shy or afraid to say, hey, we need an industrial policy. It's good for our economy. It's good for our country. Um, And you see those policies that were in as white paper that came out of that manufacturing summit in the Inflation Reduction Act. And now it just speaks for itself, right? I mean we see publicly the literally billions of dollars of new manufacturing investments that have already been announced but there are many more investments that are being talked about companies are negotiating with state economic development agencies and so over the next couple of quarters i think we're going to see a heck of a lot more manufacturing investments i think you guys even
3: underestimate what has happened all right <laughs> and i know you guys when you guys are talking about from a lobbying standpoint, you're always kind of using the highest numbers, like whatever you guys come up with, it's going to exceed that. Mm. And, you know, to me, I'm like an amateur historian. I love history. And I just see how the United States of America, when you truly understand how it was built and the Mm -hmm. industrial revolution is what made us the economic powerhouse and world power that we are today. But we have failed in the last 50 to 70 years. We have fallen behind. And we cannot continue to be an economic superpower for the next 50 years if we don't change something. And everybody has been trying to change. How do we bring jobs back to America? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get a little dark now. All right.
2: Uh-oh.
3: So how <laughs> should we take up? a drink? All right, yes. All right, get, break out the dom. Right. <laughs> so, so how can this be unwound? One of the things that everybody loves about um, Congress is we can pass something for 20 years and then six months later it's been repealed. Right. All right. So how can this thing go awry with the Inflation Reduction Act?
0: Oh my goodness! These are the things I think about all day, every day. Welcome to my dark world. Um, it's a good thing I'm totally optimistic, generally. So, first of all, thank you. I appreciate those kind words, and I I would be so happy to underestimate the impact of this because I think it I think it's going to transform our future. And you know, I'm looking around the room. All four of us have children. Like the the world we are giving to our children is going to be radically different as it should be. And I'm so optimistic about that. Um, I think a couple of things are going to happen. One, I think, you know, obviously the House, the House is now controlled by Republicans. They have made it very clear that investigating and, and, and having aggressive oversight is a priority. There's already been a House committee on China formed. There have already been clear indications that they will be investigating the loan, um, you know, the loan guarantee office at the Department of Energy, the way in which like China plays into the solar supply chain, like a number of areas. So I think we should anticipate, expect, and in some ways welcome that inquiry, right? Like it's coming. Let's be ready for it. None of that, though, leads me to think that it's going to be overturned. Um, One of the things and this is why winning the win is so important. My guess is that many of those places you are going to open offices in Pennsylvania are going to be in districts that are held by Republican members of Congress. Um, And so our job, your job and my job and our job together is to make sure that those members see the beneficial impact the IRA is having on their constituents, on their tax base, right, on the families and their communities. And so when John and I and others on the SIA team go into offices one-on-one, nobody's really against solar, right? Like no one's saying this is a terrible technology. I can't believe this is happening almost to a person, members of Congress and state legislatures understand that a transition is underway. They want it to be fair. They want it to be um, uh, sort of managed, right? Obviously, politicians don't love disruption. Um, We can talk about disruption in a minute. But, you know, they all know that this is where the economy is going. And they just want to make sure like things are happening in a way that feels comfortable to them. They might not always say that out in public, but they certainly say that behind closed doors. And so, we got to keep our eye on the ball. We got to win the win. But I'm not as worried about things getting unravelled as I am about sort of political um, disaster on the China front, which will have the impact of slowing things down without having to pass any legislation. So things that undermine consumer confidence, right? That makes when someone from Freedom Forever or another company is is offering this opportunity to save money, the first thought is skepticism and disbelief, not wow, this is a great opportunity or when the corporates, right, who, who drive some of the utility scale procurement think, you know what, there's too much oversight, there's too much, this is too politicized. I don't want our ESG, uh, our um, ESG environment, social governance, is that what it
2: stands for? Yes.
0: ESG goals yes. to be like criticized by our customers or by our elected. So I'm just gonna pull back on my renewable procurement, right, or utilities think, Ugh, The solar stuff is too much of a pain. It's too political. It's too hard to get stuff. We're not going to do it. Like those are the things I worry about because those don't require an act of Congress. Those just require kind of our social license to operate our consumer, our consumer acceptance to be questioned. That's what will slow us down. And so our job is just to keep putting our best foot forward, telling the story, showing the job creation so that when the inquiries come. Right. When people try to link us to sort of China, to forced labor, to unethical consumer practices, we have a really strong and positive story to tell.
3: And there really hasn't been an industry that I believe will be big enough to truly do that until renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before on the podcast. I truly believe with all my heart that I've stumbled luckily into something in renewable energy that this is the greatest wealth creation opportunity Mm -hmm. of my lifetime. This will be what oil has been for the last 75 years. And whoever can control, all right, the complete supply chain of renewable energy will be the dominant economic superpower for the next 200 years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't happening until now. Now you have us, the largest residential installer in the country. We are opening a manufacturing plant. We have to because of the Inflation Reduction Act. And that is a credit to you guys, what you guys have done, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it is amazing. And I really, truly believe we have changed the course of American history if we can continue this.
1: All right. I think this is a good place to take a break. We're going to be filming a two-part episode. So make sure you stay tuned for next week for part two with Abby Hopper, CEO of SIA. Thanks for joining. Talk to you guys next week.